Please stand once again for the reading of God's word this morning coming from Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Let's worship the Lord in the hearing of his word. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Someone once remarked that if you want to wear a cross as an earring, it might be a good idea to wear an electric chair as its pair, to remind yourself of what the cross was and did and meant. For the cross is the single most famous and recognizable sign or object or symbol, whatever you want to call it, insignia in all of human history. It's everywhere. Jewelry, signs, you look around. But what does the cross actually mean? Just give you an example or an illustration from history. Is the cross what the Roman Emperor Constantine thought it meant? Remember who Constantine was? Roman Emperor in the 4th century AD who supposedly, we don't know, I'm not going to pretend to know, I'm not a historian, I don't know that even historians know, but supposedly he converted to Christianity. At least what he did was he declared the entirety of Western civilization at that time, the Roman Empire, to be Christian. And here's how it came about. It was, a battle, it was before a battle, and Constantine, as the leader, as the Roman emperor, was scared, was anxious, and he decided to pray to the great supreme God. And as he prayed, he looked to heaven, and as the story goes, he saw a vision. And the vision was up above the noonday sun, and what he saw was a huge cross above the sky. And along there were the words in the vision. There was this cross and these words. And the words said, 
in this sign, conquer. And he ended up putting the first two letters of Christ's name on the shields of his shoulder, went out, they conquered, won the battle, and he said, okay, I'll become a Christian. Now, is that what the cross means? Reading one commentary, he says, before Christ came, the cross was a gallows. The cross was a gas chamber, a firing squad, a guillotine. It did not mean at all strength and conquest. All the cross meant was not that you won, but that you lost. It is not a symbol of strength or conquest, but a symbol of having been conquered or a symbol of weakness. And here comes Jesus along. And isn't it astounding that the Bible would take the cross of all these things, the thing that in the time, if we read this in light of the original context, Mark's readers in the first century, it would be a very familiar symbol in the ancient world. And what did he do? He made it and turned it into the most recognizable, familiar symbol in the history of the world. But what does the cross mean? We are moving here in Mark chapter 15. It's now the next morning, verse 1 tells us. Jesus has appeared before the Sanhedrin, and here come the chief priests, chief, chief priests, scribes, the elders, and it says the whole council, so now the entire Sanhedrin. They've declared him condemnable, and they bring him over to the Roman governor, the representative in that area of the Roman Empire, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And in this text, we see Jesus before Pilate, and we learn two things. There are two things that we need to, in a sense, ask of the text. As we look at Jesus and Pilate, let's ask ourselves the question, who really is in charge? I think we know what it looks like, right? But who really is in charge? Then we get to the account of Pilate saying, there's somebody I could release. It's the usual custom each year to release for you a prisoner. And you have the issue of Jesus and Barabbas. And let's ask that question. What does Jesus' being in charge really look like anyway? In other words, what does his administration look like? So who's in charge and what does his being in charge look like? Look with me at verse 1. Who's really in charge? It says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. Whole council is that Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership council, that council of 70. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate begins to interrogate him. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? Do you see how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now commentators and historians remind us, especially looking at the original meaning of this text, that we need to recognize that there is a political meaning. And the political meaning leads to the theological meaning to the cross. And the political meaning would be that the cross was an ultimate symbol of Roman power. Recognize Pilate is being extremely intentional when he asks Jesus the question, are you the king of the Jews? As a matter of fact, in the 32, first 32 verses of Mark chapter 15, 
Six times it refers to Jesus as king of the Jews. And that's because there's a political meaning. See, and the political meaning would be that this ultimate symbol of Roman power. See, the Jewish leaders knew this. They've sentenced Jesus to death. If they thought they could, they would have put him to death right there. They've condemned Jesus to die for blasphemy, but they can't carry out the sentence because power was held by the Romans. And believe me, Pilate knew that. So as one historian writes about this political meaning of the cross, he says, the Jewish leadership would have killed Jesus if they could. But they knew that the cross was the ultimate symbol of Roman power. The cross said, we are in charge here. And this is what happens to people who get in our way. Polite Romans didn't even mention the word crucifixion or cross. The reality was so brutal, so ugly, so repellent. But crosses are the reality on which their empire was in fact constructed. The empire which boasted of bringing justice and peace to the whole world. So as you look at this interrogation, Jesus before Pilate, what is it that Pilate is, what does he really want? What is he going after? He really could care less about fairness or justice or anything like that. What he wants, remember he's the representative of the empire. Caesar's put him in charge there. So what does he want? He wants to stay out of trouble. He wants to keep riots down. Especially he wants to have no trouble in his realm during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover season. He's just interested in having no trouble in keeping everyone in line. So as one commentator again put it, he says, once again, then the first level of meeting Mark's readers would find in this story would be political. Jesus was going to die the death they all knew about, the death of someone caught between the upper millstone of local trouble and the lower millstone of imperial Rome. The issue here as Pilate is interrogating Jesus as who's in charge. Who is truly Lord? Who is king? Caesar or Jesus? Pilate is trying to demonstrate that he has this under control to show that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king. The issue is a kingdom issue. That's why Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And look at Jesus' You've said so. Sure, that's what you claim. Pilate is amazed. He's dumbfounded. He thinks he is in charge, but he is not. Think about it this way. We all know this on a personal level. Don't we all have situations where we think we're in charge, but we're really not? We think we're in control. We think we're the ones calling the shots, but we're not. I'll give you what may sound like a silly example, but it comes home to me every morning. Okay? We have two dogs. You know my two dogs, Calvin and Hobbes. We love our two dogs. Now, Jeff likes to think he's in charge. Dominion, Genesis says it. I'm a pastor, I know the word of God. They're man's best friends. They're supposed to do what I say. They sleep when I tell them to sleep. They get up when I tell them to get up. Oh, deluded Jeff. Because at 6 o'clock every morning, I could throw my iPhone out. I don't need, I didn't need, you know, to actually know about daylight savings time. They get me up every morning like clockwork at 6 a.m. Jeff thinks he's in charge, but he's really not. 
The dogs are. That's exactly, that's exactly right. They know about it. Pilate thinks he's in charge, but he's not. This is a kingdom or lordship issue. There is a power struggle going on between Pilate and Jesus that really isn't a power struggle. Pilate thinks he is winning. He thinks Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is in full control. There is only one Lord and King, and that is Jesus. Friends, do you know that in your life? And I don't mean do you just believe it, because I know we intellectually, but do you really know that in your life? For if you do, why do we worry so much? If we really know that Jesus is in charge, that he's got this, and think about what he tells us, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He promises to be with us. He's the one authoring and writing our story. If God is for us, who can be against us? Pilate? The Sanhedrin? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? For neither death nor life, angels nor demons, height nor depth, the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate you from the love of Christ. Friends, do you know who really is in charge? And do you functionally live like that and walk in that knowledge? Okay, if we know Jesus is in charge, what does his being in charge look like? We said Pilate thinks he's in charge, carrying out the will of the Roman Empire, but he really isn't. Jesus is truly the king, the Lord of the whole world. It might look like Jesus is losing, but he's in full control. See, and that leads to a very practical question that we have to ask ourselves. What does his control, what does his kingdom... See, this is, I think, why we worry and why we get anxious and why we're filled with fears, why we don't walk with more confidence... We tell ourselves, he's in charge, he's in control, he's Lord and King. But then we assert our ideas of what his being in charge ought to look like. Come on, admit that with me, we do that. We go, he's in charge and here's what it looks like. You know, I can say, he's being in charge. you know what it ought to look like? The church is thriving, my wife is getting better, everybody's liking me and cooperating me, I'm healthy, I broke 80 playing golf. I've got all sorts of ideas. The Yankees win the World Series. You want me to go on and on? I've got all sorts of ideas of what Jesus being in charge should look like. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Peter thought he knew. We looked at Peter last week. What Jesus being in charge looked like. And then he sees Jesus. It didn't look like Jesus being arrested and seized and taking away bound, his world crashing down around him. That did not look like Jesus as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It looked to him like Caesar was winning. So what does he do? I don't know the guy. I'm even going to invoke a curse on myself to say, don't associate. That's the losing team. Don't associate, don't associate me with a lowly losing team. I play for a winner. What does Jesus being... See, Pilate is even amazed. Jesus is silent. What do you think Mark is getting at here? I think he's very intentionally alluding to the suffering servant king that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53 when he said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not 
his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's remember what a kingdom and an administration is. Tim Keller quotes, he says, a kingdom or an administration, that is a way of ordering things and getting things done. A new administration means things are different now. There's a new order for getting things done, a new set of assumptions and goals. And another commentator put it so, he says, so in the life of God's people, there will be a remarkable reversal of values. Christians will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. Jesus is demonstrating he's king. He, a, new, a new way of ordering things is here. What the world calls desirable and is represented by Pilate are things like power, recognition, control, authority, prestige, status, success. Jesus is reversing those values. Jesus is demonstrating what his administration is like, his kingdom. And his kingdom is about things like weakness, suffering, vulnerability, rejection. Jesus, the true king, the one who really is in charge, is demonstrating what his being in charge looks like by being vulnerable. Do you not think he could have called down a legion of angels and crushed Pilate on the spot? But that's not what his kingdom looks like. His kingdom is one of vulnerability and suffering. And nothing shows this like the account of Barabbas, the insurrectionist and murderer. Look with me at verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Obviously, this was a custom. And he answered them saying, well, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Notice how he's referring to Jesus again. It is always a kingdom issue. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, don't exonerate Pilate. He had the authority to release Jesus. In fact, one of the most tragic saddest parts is how Matthew records this. Matthew saying, Pilate washes his hands of his whole thing. Pilate's hands aren't clean. He had the authority to release Jesus, but wanting to satisfy the crowds instead, he delivered him up to be crucified. There was a man, his name was Tom Skinner. In 1970, he delivered a talk at InterVarsity's Urbana Conference that they held every couple of years. And the talk was on world evangelism. And he gave this illustration of Barabbas and Jesus. And nobody puts it like him. It's a lengthy quote. Be patient with me. But I want to read how Skinner describes what's going on here. Skinner says, Then I discovered that the Christ who leaped out of the pages of the New Testament was nobody's sissy. Nobody's effeminate. Rather, he was a gutsy, contemporary, radical revolutionary. 
He says, now the definition of a revolution is to take an existing situation was proved to be unworkable, archaic, impractical, and out of date, and to destroy it and overthrow it and replace it with a system that works. That's what Jesus is doing. He's overthrowing the kingdom of darkness and replacing it with his kingdom. Skinner says the whole premise of the scripture is that the human order is archaic, impractical, no good, infested with demonic power, with sin, hate, envy, jealousy, pride. The whole existing human order is infested with ungodliness. And the whole purpose of Christ coming into the world was to overthrow the demonic human system and to establish his own kingdom in the hearts of men. And he goes on to illustrate it with this account of Jesus and Barabbas. Skinner says in his talk, he says, in Jesus' day there was a system working, just like today. The Romans were oppressing the Jews, and there arose in the hills of Jerusalem a fellow by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas went through the hills, burning down those nice Roman suburban homes. They finally caught up with Barabbas and arrested him and charged him with insurrection and murder. But out in those same hills, there was another radical. His name was Jesus. Jesus had no guns, no tanks, no ammunition. And of all the dumb things, he went around preaching a thing called the kingdom of God. But things started happening. Blind people started seeing. Lame people started to get up and walk. People started getting liberated mentally and physically. Homes started to be put back together. And from miles around, people came to sit at the feet of this man who had this tremendous taste for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus was turning the whole thing upside down so that they finally had to arrest him too. So now Skinner says in this talk on world evangelism, he says, now look at the Romans. They have two revolutionaries locked up. And Pilate stands out before the crowd, and he says, you know, around this time I get very gracious. I'm going to release one of these two to you, and I want you to tell me which one you want. Over here you've got Barabbas. He's been burning the system down, killing people. Do you want him? And over here I've got Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God. I've interrogated him. I can't find anything wrong with him. Other than he goes around that there's dead people alive because of him. Some blind people see. Lame people are hearing. Deaf people are hearing. So which one do you want? Jesus or Barabbas? And with one voice they cry out. Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And he says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And of course their answer, with one voice, one accord, crucify him. And the question is, why Barabbas and not Jesus? And the answer is very simple. If you let Barabbas go, you can always stop him. The most he will do is cause another insurrection, rouse up some more rioters, some more guerrillas, get them, and what do you do? You put that, that riot down, you'll arrest him and throw him in jail again. But how do you stop Jesus? See, what did they do with Jesus? They took him and they nailed him to a cross. But they did not realize that in nailing Jesus to the cross, they were putting on that cross the sinful nature of humanity. He was God's answer to the human dilemma. That on that cross, Christ was bearing in his own body my sin and your sin and proclaiming our liberation on that cross. Skinner says that three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off one of the greatest political coups of all time. He got up out of the grave. 
when he arose from the dead, the Bible now calls him the second Adam, the new man, the head of a new humanity, the leader of a new creation. What do we learn about what Jesus' being in charge look like? What do we learn about God's administration? God's administration is not about giving us everything we want, but it is about giving us most deeply and what most desperately we need. And that's our humanity back. And our humanity back by entering into our place and being our substitute. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And the theologian John Stott says, The concept of substitutionary justice is the very heart of the gospel. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you hear that? Jesus is our substitute. He was condemned to death for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then, He's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. I want you to think, when Jesus intercedes for you and you're united to Jesus, he is presenting you to God. This is who you are to God. You are not the gossip, the luster, the greedy, the failure, whatever names you call yourself. You are to God holy in his sight, without blame in his sight, Above reproach. Do you know what above reproach means? It means you can't be accused. You're above reproach before him. Tim Keller says, if we think of the cross as only pardon for sins, of course it is pardon for sins, but if we reduce it to that, it's only pardon for sins, and not also the reception of Christ's righteous record, we don't grasp the thoroughness of our salvation. People say, for instance, I can't forgive myself, or they struggle in various ways to try to prove themselves and don't realize that in Christ they are holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus is bound so we can be released. We get what he deserved, and he gets what we deserved. Theologians call this the great exchange. Do we not see this in the narrative of Jesus and Barabbas? First of all, do we not see that Barabbas is a metaphor for all of us? We are all Barabbas, and Jesus is our substitute. We, like Barabbas, are set free. We are the insurrectionists and the murderers who are set free, who are liberated because Jesus was delivered over to death. He gets our sin and we get his righteousness. And because of that, the Father can look at us, see us in Christ, and say of us, like he said of his son, like he said of Jesus in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, at Jesus' baptism, he said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now we get that record. 
God is well pleased with Jesus, and that record becomes ours. Do you know what God says about you? He says he is well pleased with you. He trusts you. He likes you. He's delighted in you. You are above reproach. You are pure in his sight. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid of something making us impure when we are holy in the sight of God? Do you know that God is well pleased with you? Oh, that we would begin to live like we have the riches of God's pleasure. That that is what God 24-7 says about us because of Jesus' righteousness and quit. May our chief repentance be that we would quit living like paupers, trying to scratch out an identity, trying to be good enough, trying to somehow prove ourselves to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, the gospel is just, obviously it's believable and it's true, but sometimes it just seems to me so unbelievable. When we really get to thinking what it is and what it's all about, that Jesus would get our failure, our evil, our rebellion, our wickedness. He would get our flaws. He would get all the ways we deny our flaws. He would get all the ways we delude and deceive ourselves. He would get what we see. He would get what we don't see. And then, Father, forgive us because we don't see the wholeness and the fullness of the gospel. We reduce and limit the gospel. We get the record of Jesus so that you really do look at us And say, with you, my beloved children, my beloved family, you are my sons and daughters. You are my family. I have brought you in, brought you to myself, and adopted you. And you are holy, pure, free from accusation, without blemish, blameless. I am well pleased in your sight. Oh, that we would have that reality and live out of that reality. Help us to understand the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.